No, good morning. My name is Nicholas Ellen. I have the privilege of being the senior pastor of Community of Faith Bible Church in Houston, Texas, and um, had the privilege to come here uh, for yesterday. We had a day on walking through love, and so this morning I've been given the assignment to share a little bit with you, and the assignment this morning is to talk about something that I know nothing about, but I'm sure you do. That's just temptation. I don't know about temptation. I'm just going to talk to you guys about it. No, I'm just kidding. I, I was hoping we could spend some time this morning looking at that. There should be some notes out there for you uh, as we kind of walk through some of this this morning. I hope that it can challenge you to think about temptation at a different level, something we all struggle with, something we all have to work through. But the Bible has answers for us. The Bible is very clear about how we handle the issue of temptation. And the more we can understand how to handle it, but honestly own up to it, things can change. So before we begin, let's open up in a word of prayer. Let's begin to walk through some of this together. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. You're so kind to us. You've never left us and you never will. We thank you, Lord, that you've delivered us from all of our sin and made us in right standing and right relationship with you. We ask, Lord, that as we are under your leadership, under your power, sealed by you, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to not only learn what you want us to learn today, but by your power, live it out and love others with it. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, temptation, as you would think through with me, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Let's look at verses 13 to verses 14. That's going to be our foundational premise this morning. James chapter 1, verses 13 to verses 14. I want to give you a definition of temptation, and then I want us to just kind of explore some of the dynamics because, again, Everyone has a price. Everyone has a price. I remember when I was teaching uh, one of my classes in Houston at the College of Biblical Studies, I put out there something for the students. I said, here's a stupid question. I said, who has the most power? Is it the drug addict or the drug dealer? Who has the most power? And it was a 50-50 split. There were some that would say, no, this is the drug dealer. He has the most power because, you know, he has the drugs and blah, 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 blah. Some would say, no, it was a drug addict. And I let them go back and forth. And I said, well, any of you ever take economics at any time in your life? And most of them said, no. I said, well, there's a simple thing in economics called supply and demand. I said, and supply and demand is very simple. When there's a demand for something, the supply will increase. When there's no demand for something, the supply will decrease. For example, I want to share that with you today. I've got some eight-track tapes right now. <laughs> and you are such a great set of people. Tell you what, I'll sell my eight-track tapes to you for $2 a copy. Do I have any takers? Okay, y'all are tough. I mean, you're working with me. I, you know, you're such a good people. How about I sell it to you for a dollar? Do I have any takers? So how many of you are old enough to know what 8-track tapes are? Anybody in the room? Okay, amen. So I've got some people to know what 8-track tapes really are, right? Now, what if I said I've got 72-inch flat-screen smart TVs, I promise you they're not hot, I promise you, and I'm selling them for $5 a piece. See? My brother raised his hand so quickly, he was ready to take that $5. You'd have repented later if it was hot, right? Well, Lord, I didn't know, so, but thank you for, no. But anyway, <laughs> supply and demand. I said to them, here's the reality. It is always the drug addict that has the power because of their desire for the substance. I said, and the reality is the drug dealer has power, but his power is limited to the desire of the drug addict. If the drug addict doesn't want it, the drug dealer has no power, therefore it's not enticing. Satan is like a masterful drug dealer. And the only time there's any power in your life is because you want what he's selling. Everyone needs to understand that when it comes to temptation, we all have a price. And the more we ignore the price, the more we are caught up in the devastation of temptation. But the moment we understand our price, the moment we understand where we are, it then becomes a recognizable reality. Satan is using certain things, not because he's so powerful, but because my desire for blank, whatever it is, is so powerful in my life, I'm willing to sin to get it and sin when I don't get it. 
And because it has that much control over me, I could be praising the Lord one moment and then in a second change all of that because of blank. Everyone in this room, including the person talking, has a price. We need to understand what that price is. Let me see if I can put it to you this way. Pastor Josh is a good friend of mine, and we spend a lot of time fellowshipping and talking about different things. And uh, we both have something in common about food. We like to eat. (laughs) Right? Now, what if we were on the street and there was roadkill? And we stopped and said, ooh, yummy, roadkill. Let's just stop and... That's not appealing to you guys, right? It's not appealing to me. I use that as an example. But let's say we are going down the street, and I'm a Texas guy, and I see Longhorn Steakhouse. Right? That works for me. Satan knows what you like. And he knows at what cost you're willing to go to get it, how you're willing to be deceptive, how you're willing to lie to other people, how you're willing to pretend you're okay spiritually when you're not. He knows exactly where you are. But for most of us, we don't pay attention and we won't be honest. In this text, in James chapter 1, verse 13 and verse 14, he says to us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. I want us to explore that together today and understand in this temptation. Look with me at this definition for a moment. Temptation can be defined as an enticement presented to lead one into sin against God. This enticement comes in various forms according to the lust in one's heart. Nobody is tempted by roadkill. Well, hopefully no one in this room is tempted by roadkill. It has no value. It has no interest. It it doesn't excite you. It doesn't draw you. But there are things that lure you because that's what you want. And you want it more than you should. As you look at the notes and walk with me, that text, if we break it down, each one is tempted. Tempted means lured into a trap to seek to be enticed into sin. When he is carried away, lured away by attraction, and enticed, which means to be seduced by his own. That word own there in the Greek is an idios. It's where we get the term idiosyncrasies. It's we all have our special own little thing, our own little desire that is more important to us than it should be. Lust. The word lust there has to do with cravings, desires that have become cravings that are unrestrained. It has to do with coveting and craving something in the wrong way. Most people think about lust, they just think of sex. But when the Bible in this passage is talking about lust, it's talking about any desire that you want so bad that you're willing to sin to get it and sin when you don't get it. It has become such a constant craving of your soul, you can no right have your wonderful devotion that day, have gone to Sunday school and have gone to worship the Lord in spirit and truth and have done all the right service, but as soon as blank shows up, you will sacrifice everything you did for blank. And all of you know what blank is in your life. If we think about this in your notes, it says, the lust of your heart are desires you believe that you cannot do without being satisfied. You are willing to sin to obtain and sin when you do not obtain them. Let me give you some things that we have turned into lust. Things that you think are okay, and in and of themselves they're okay, but because you want them more than loving God and loving others, you're willing to sin for these things. Let me give you some examples of some of the things you've turned into lustful desires, and you're easily manipulated. And before we go there, let me say this. This is why you can know right and still do wrong. This is why you can memorize all the verses of the Bible. This is why you can go to seminary and have all the intellectual prowess and know the Old Testament, the New Testament, to be able to defend your reformed systematic theological position and all of that and still do dumb stuff. Because these desires override your common sense. I've always shared, I remember I had a young lady in my office 
we were talking and she had fallen into some sexual sin. And these are the words she said to me as we were talking. But he said he loved me. I said, okay. Let's follow that line of thinking. One of the most valuable things about you is your body. And the Bible says that your body is not your own. And you knew that. So this isn't anything new. I don't have to quote the scriptures to you. But that which you knew about your body, you were willing to let another man have that should not have it because he said he loved you. Your desire for love became such a demand for love that you were willing to compromise the very thing that was not yours to compromise for the very thing that you shouldn't have the way you want it. But look at how it leads you to make decisions that you know you shouldn't make. I said, that my daughter, that's what I call most of the young ladies in my church, that my daughter is the epitome of temptation moving into destruction. Because you wanted to be loved so much, God's love was not enough, you were willing to compromise your body for blank. Now, that's just one instance. Let me give you some things that we tend to make more important than loving God and loving others. The things in life that are not bad to want, but the moment you start to live for them, you are easily manipulated. You easily make decisions, and you know. This is how I tell parents sometimes. They'll say, well, I, I raised him you know, in a, a Christian home. I, I homeschooled, or I put him in a Christian school, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you, you know the story. You've heard it before. And now, all of a sudden, they just seem to have gone wild. I said, well, let me tell you what happened. I said, this is not a reflection of your parenting. This is a reflection of their heart. And when people don't fear their parents and don't fear God, the real heart shows up. And their desire for blank was way more important than the will and the ways of God. It's not about your parenting and it's not about the hard work you did. That is about your child exposing their heart to you. Flip the script. I don't know what happened to my wife or my husband. Everything was fine and then blank happened. Now, what did I do wrong? Well, sir, ma'am, it's not that you did anything wrong. There's something in their heart that they wanted way more than submission to God's will and the sanctity of this marriage and this covenant. And because blank was more important than what God wants, this is why they made this decision. This is not a reflection of you and what you did or didn't do. This is a reflection of where their hearts are. And so as we walk through these things, I want you to pay close attention and allow yourself to be honest before the Lord. And look at this list and ask yourself, which one of these things, as I get honest, has really been the reason why I'm willing to sacrifice everything I know that's right because I want blank. That, my brothers and sisters, is how temptation works. Take a look at this list. Let me begin. Let me read what lust is. Lust of your heart or desires you believe you cannot do without being satisfied. You're willing to sin to obtain and sin when you do not obtain them. It could be a desire to be in control that has become a demand, a craving you believe you can't live without. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and say, do we have any control freaks in the room? Anybody? I won't do that. But here's the thing about control, guys. In order to have control, someone has to give it to you. And the reality is you don't get to control someone giving you control. How devastating is that to people who worship control? But how manipulative you can be and how manipulated you can become because when control becomes a demand... You are easily stirred in so many different ways. And I won't read all of these details, but let me just walk through them. To be loved, to be accepted, to be understood, to never be hurt or disappointed, to be respected, to be served, to have personal preferences accommodated at all times, to be viewed as competent, 
to be approved of, to belong to someone, to be held in high regard, to be significant to others, to be fulfilled by others, to be satisfied by others, to be valuable to others, to maintain a favorable position with others, to be secure, to be safe, to never be alone. I'm on your street in some of those things. And if you were to just take a moment and look at your life, the last fight you had with that individual, the last sin you did that you knew that you knew the right thing and chose to do the wrong thing, I'm sure if we were to sit down together, it was because something on this list was more important to you than submission to God's will and loving someone else. Oh, you knew, you had studied for that test if you were in school and if you're in seminary, you, learned, you knew the right theology, you understood, and watch this, you could intellectually explain to me why you made that decision. But your heart was on display. Now, I've said a lot in a little bit of time, and I love to take what I call commercial breaks. I'd love for you to take a moment, maybe one or two minutes, Go through that list and just think about what's been the most important to you because here's what you don't know that you must learn. What's most important to you on that list is where you're easily manipulated. Not because you're not smart, not because you don't study your Bible, not because you don't come to church, because you do, not because you don't serve, not because you don't understand, but you're easily manipulated because that thing, whatever it is on that list, has become way more important than all you know and all of God's will. Take about two or three minutes. Review that list. And when we come back, we'll build on this a little bit more and talk about the signs because sometimes we may not know when we're being tempted. I want to help you to think through this process with me. Take about two minutes. We'll come right back. All right, back to our regularly scheduled program. Are you getting a good look at you? Are you seeing some things about your life you didn't consider? See, when I do marital counseling or I do any kind of counseling where there's a lot of confusion and difficulties in any form of relationship, whether it's single people dating or married people, you name it, it always comes back to these desires have become demands and you expect the other person to meet that demand because that demand is more important to you than that person. And you have minimized that person as a means to this end. And so you're looking for formulas and solutions to the relationship that really boil down to how do we get this person 
to accept this is what I want and how do they behave properly to give me what I want because the world revolves around blank. When you understand this dynamic, you, you'll begin to see that we're not complicated people. We're not deep people. We're just selfish people. And the more we want what we want when we want it and we expect other people to give it to us, Satan understands that dynamic, and we're going to talk about in a moment how this thing happens and how we find ourselves in situations we shouldn't be in, knowing we shouldn't, but we do it anyway. It's because blank, whatever blank is for you, has become way more important than loving God and loving others. And until you can own up to it and not excuse things in your life, you know, we don't understand and blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. I don't have to understand but I can share this with you. You want blank, and there's no intellectual, detailed analysis you can give me of the people in your life or your past or your parents or the pressures or the pains and problems. There's nothing you can say to me that's going to excuse the reality that blank is more important, and you will be led by blank more than the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the will and ways of God. The moment you can take ownership is when you can find yourself having the powers we'll talk about later on to resist temptation. But you got to be honest. You got to see it for what it is. I tell people all the time, you're not manipulated because somebody has power. You're manipulated because of the power of what you want from the people. They're not that smart. They're not smarter than you. And they may know more than you, but that doesn't matter. It's not their intelligence that's causing you to sway. You want blank so much that you're willing to compromise. True story. My wife and I, first year we were married, um, we were coming in together. We were young. We had some um, student loan debts and some other things we were trying to work through. And my goal in being married the first two years is I just... It was all about being debt-free. It was all about having the power to not have any debt over us. And I just, that was my, my whole thing. And so we went to this financial advisor, and the man said the key words. He said, I can make all of your debt go away. All you have to do is sign right here. My eyes got about this big, and I was grabbing the pen to sign, and my wife said, honey, can we talk for a minute? And I'm saying, talk about what? This man is going to make our debt go away. She said, psh, psh, just can we go outside? I'm like, but this man is about to, he's going to hook us up. We're going to get, I mean, he's going to go away, right? I said, ah, we'll be right back. Go outside. I said, honey, what are you talking about? Now, let me give you some context. My wife had been a paralegal for over 17 years. She knows contracts. She says, this is what they call bankruptcy, honey. And Section 5, Part C says da 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 We're not trying to do bankruptcy. Christians don't do this. I said, oh, okay. So I'll go back in there. Well, you know, right there in Section 5, da 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 yeah, we don't do that. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but what happened my desire became a lust and I was willing to compromise everything because I had to have it and that man knew exactly what to say he wasn't that smart I was that selfish and had my wife not stopped me We've been in a world of trouble financially. What is it in your life that you keep making the same decision knowing you shouldn't make it because you want blank? So look at this text, and I want us to look at how this temptation works. And go back to James chapter 1 for a moment and walk with me. Let's look at verse 13, but we're going to go all the way to verse 15 now, and we're going to try to look at how we can see the signs that you are being tempted. In James chapter 1, again, verses 13, we're going to add on verse 15 now. He says, let no one say when he is being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Watch this. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I want to help you see how lust is conceived, what's happening, and the dynamics. And I want you to just walk with me and think about the last time you gave in and you knew you shouldn't. See if this doesn't fit what was going on with you. So in the next section here, it says desires, signs that one is being tempted. Desires consume your mind in the wrong way. When being tempted, you will find that your mind is enticed to consider an earthly, natural, demonic perspective on what you want to obtain or maintain. Here is how it starts. Letter A, there is the seduction of the mind. What do we mean by the seduction of the mind? As a result of the flesh, we all have this indwelling sin. We talk about that in Galatians 5, where it talks about in verse 17, the flesh wrestles against the spirit. Well, there's a raging war against your mind. Even in 1 Peter 2.11, it talks about abstain from those lustly desires that wage war against your mind. There's a war going on in your mind. That's not the devil. That is your indwelling sin. And it is always trying to get you to do something. Consider this. As a result of the flesh, indwelling sin, raging war against your mind, you start to move towards focusing on things below instead of things above. You start to move towards making self-interest a priority above God's will. That's how it begins. You become inward. Instead of focusing on the reality of God and his will, you start to focus on you. I can't get this thing out of my head. It's everywhere I go. It's that Burger King commercial. Are you guys hearing it? BK, have it your way. You rule. And I'm thinking, no, I don't. But I can't get it out of everywhere I go, every city I've traveled to, every time I turn on the television. BK, have it your I mean, it's like in my mind. I can't get away from it. But that's the seduction. Which leads to letter B, the suggestions from the culture to the mind. As the world speaks to you, you start to consider the suggestions from the culture that you can do what you want. You can have what you want. You can be what you want. And you start to consider the suggestion from the culture that you deserve whatever or whoever you want to pursue. See, the longer you allow the media, the music, and the mindset of the culture to engage, you start to say, well, maybe I do rule. Maybe I can have it my way. Maybe I do deserve. Because again, there is that seduction of the mind by the flesh, taking desires and making them something more, and then suggestions from the culture. But then thirdly, there's a saturation of the mind with the seductions and suggestions. As you take in the seductions from the flesh and suggestions from the culture, your thoughts tend to be driven and reduced to what you have been denied, what you believe you deserve, what you want, what you think you should have, or what you think you need. You become increasingly preoccupied with having a life that is under your control to bring you what you want and to keep you from what you don't want. Now, am I the only one in this room that has experienced this or... Is there anybody else in this room that's experienced what I'm talking about? You don't have to raise your hand. You can give me a nod or a wink, and, you know, something like this. Or am I just talking about myself up here? I, I'm, I'm just curious. Oh, you guys are real quiet. Nobody's saying nothing. Okay. By your silence, I'm assuming you're with me. All right. The saturation that we saw in letter C, letter D, there becomes a sadness of the mind as a result of the seductions and suggestions. As you take in the seductions from the flesh and the suggestions from the world, you tend to become increasingly unhappy and disappointed in this life because you don't have what you treasure in this life above loving God and loving others. Or you do not have enough of what you treasure in this life above loving God and loving others. But then you moved, and this is where, again, it's conceived and it moves into action. Solutions of the mind as a result of the seductions and suggestions. As you take in the seductions from the flesh, suggestions from the world, you become preoccupied with people. You become preoccupied with perspectives and practices or pleasures of this temporal life to help you obtain what you want or to help you keep you from what you don't want. 
This is how James, how lust is conceived and brings forth death. There's always things going on in your mind. That's where the Bible impresses upon you to take every thought captive. That's why the Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is why you must always be evaluating what's happening with your desires. Because the world, which is operated by the evil one, knows exactly how to manipulate you. But if you're not paying attention, this is how you get caught. What's the key point here? When one is being tempted, one is constantly alert to the opportunities to satisfy the appetites of the heart that have become the lusts of the heart. One is also enticed to pursue an ungodly agenda that has been on personal satisfaction at all cost. As a result of devotion to these pre-existing conditions of the heart, one is willing to consider opportunities that will lead to sinful compromise of character to satisfy these lustful desires of the heart. That's why that young lady sat in my office and said, I was willing to have sex with that young man because he said he loved me. It's not that she didn't know it was a problem. But her desire to be loved, to be seen as beautiful, her desire to be viewed as someone to be desired, she was willing to compromise what she knew. That's why young men are willing to do the things that they do. It's not that they don't know porn or those things are wrong, but their desire for pleasure, their desire to have their way, their desire to be in control. Wherever they are hungry spiritually, they want to satisfy sexually. Wherever there is hurt, they want to cover. Because of their issue and unwillingness to accept God's agenda, Satan just dangles that thing and they make decisions. That's why with most people, I don't start with what the scripture says. Because they already know that. I start, well, what did you want that you were so willing to compromise what you know? And this is going to destroy you unless you're willing to do something about it. See, you're at a Bible church. You've been taught a lot. If I were to sit down with any one of you and you were to tell me this thing that you can't seem to shake, I wouldn't quote scriptures to you. I would ask some very simple questions. What do you want so bad that you've been willing to sin to get and sin when you don't get? I want to ask you how many times you read your Bible. I want to ask you what book of the Bible you're in. I wouldn't even ask you what you learned in the seminary. I'd just be real straightforward with you. Because all of that doesn't matter at that point, does it? It wasn't your knowledge or lack of knowledge. It was your desire which overran your knowledge and your commitment. What is it that you want so bad? that you're willing to sin to get and sin when you don't get. And this cycle happens over and over and over again, not because you aren't smart, not because you don't come to church, not because you don't have your devotions, not because you're not studying your scriptures, not because you're not involved in ministry. This happens over and over and over again because blank has become more important than your devotions, than your study, than your ministry, than your worship to God. Before we move further, let's take a couple of minutes, review this section, talk about what you see, and then we'll talk about how do we resolve this? What has God put in place to help us resolve this issue of temptation? Take about two minutes, we'll come back, we'll look at some solutions together.
All right, guys, I'm going to stop you there. We're going to spend the last 15 or so minutes here together walking through basic biblical principles of how to deal with temptation. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. We're going to read verse 7 to verse 10 together, and then we want to break that down and then look at how we can put this into some steps for us to deal with the temptations that we face in life. In James chapter 4, around verse 7, he says this, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned in the morning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now let's break that down a little bit, and then let's put some practicality to that. So as you look at your notes, when we talk about submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee, submit means to place and arrange yourself under the Lord Jesus Christ by getting back in the position God has called you to function in. It's to bring yourself under the control of the master. See, the reality is, guys, the same power to raise Christ from the dead is within you. What does that mean practically? You can do what God has commanded. Every Christian has been sealed by the Spirit of God, according to Ephesians. Philippians tells us we're to work out our salvation. I work for it, but to work it out because God is at work within us. So everything that God has commanded, we have the ability to do. But here's the reality. There's only one reason or three reasons why we're not obeying God as Christians. Lack of knowledge, I just didn't know. Lack of skill, I just didn't know how. Or lack of will, I just won't. See, Christians, it's, it's, it's not complicated. I tell people all the time as saints, this isn't complicated. You can do what God commands. There's only three reasons why you're not doing it. You didn't know, you didn't know how, you just won't. So when it comes to these situations, everything that we're looking at, we have the power. If we truly belong to Christ, we can do it. But the question is, why are we not doing it? Lack of knowledge, lack of skill, or lack of will. To resist means to withstand, if you will, to be firm against, to stand your ground in the face of an attack, set oneself against, rebel against, refuse to yield. You can do this. To flee from you means that he will turn away from you in that particular temptation. When the scripture says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, turn to God is what it means to draw near. Turn to God and expect him to turn to you. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God, but he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. Delight yourself, it says in Psalm 37, in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you want him, he will make himself known to you. To turn from cleansing your hands or to turn to God by cleansing your hands, that has to do with the external behavior, if you will, is to remove the impure thing, to remove your body from activities where it is being used as an instrument of unrighteousness. It's a turning away from being a sinner as, again, living in opposition to the divine will of God is to no longer deviate from the divine will or to no longer walk in a manner because you can, saint. This isn't something you can't do. This is something you can do. Is it lack of knowledge? Is it lack of skill? Is it lack of will? When it talks about purifying your heart, that moves from the external to the internal. It's the cleansing of your mind, the cleansing of your will, your affections and conscience from this defilement, whatever it is. It's to have moral virtue in your mind, in your will, in your affections and conscience. It's turning away from this thing being double-minded. Only Christians can be double-minded. Unbelievers can't be double-minded. They're single-minded, and they're living the life. I tell people, what is the job description of a sinner? To sin. What do they do for a living? They sin. Why are we surprised? Only saints can be double-minded. And what does that mean? To be divided in your loyalty, to be divided in interest, waving between God and the world system. Turn away from that. To be miserable and mourn and weep. And what we see from verse 9 to verse 10 is to have a genuine grief and remorse over your sin. It's to humble yourself, to place yourself under the authority of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
to place yourself as a slave to the master. Now, before we get to the last part of this, consider this. God will do everything for you but one thing. He will not obey for you. He has given you everything you need to obey. He has given you himself. He's given you his word. He's given you his power, but he will not obey for you. So you have to make a decision. Am I going to be driven by these desires that I've turned into demands that I'm easily enticed by, or will I humble myself under the sight of the Lord and resist? The Lord will exalt you. What does it mean? To lift you up, to raise you up, to give you the ability to rise above your temptation and your sin. Now, I want to take all of that, and I want to put this into steps for us. Because this is what the scripture is telling us to do. But I want to show you how that can be worked out in a very practical manner. So turn with me, if you will, in your notes to the key steps to take that principles that we saw and make it practical. Number one, identify the desires of your heart that have become the lusts of your life. You know the ones they are. And you say, well, I don't know what they are. Okay, you show me where you get angry and you show me where you get worried, and I'll show you what you worship. The areas where you're angry and worried all the time are tied to the desires of your soul that have become the demands of your heart, that have become the areas where you're easily manipulated to sin. You say, well, I don't get angry all the time. Yes, you do. I don't worry. Yes, you do. And those areas of your life, God is exposing, this is what you want more than trusting me. Step number two, identify the ways you have become friendly with the world system in order to satisfy the lust of your life. Identify the people, the places, the products, the perspectives you have used as avenues to satisfy the lust of your life. Step number three, think about the distance, the damage and devastation the lust of your heart have brought between you, God, and others, and allow it to sober you and sadden you to the detriment it has caused. Think about how you're in opposition to God when you satisfy the lust of your heart. Look at that thing you want so bad and look at what it keeps doing to you and God and others. And look at how bad you feel when it's all over, whatever it is. A lot of people think that God wants them to be happy. And I always tell them this, God doesn't want you to be happy if happiness means you're going to sin. He doesn't want you to be happy at all. He wants your holiness. You aim for holiness, happiness becomes a byproduct. Happy is the man who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Happy is the man who meditates day and night on the word of the Lord. Too many people want to be happy, and they will do anything to be happy, which is the problem of why they're easily manipulated. But we must want holiness more than we want happiness. And we'll find happiness becomes the fruit. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He says he'll make your path straight. To make your path straight is to make you morally upright, to make you productive, to make you satisfied, i.e. happy. But it's different from the world's idea of happiness. Step number four, acknowledge to yourself and to God that you have become divided in loyalty between him and the world, living in opposition to his moral will and thoughts, desires, words, and deeds. Step number five, acknowledge to God all the sinful thoughts, desires, words, and deeds committed and ask for forgiveness in these things. Number six, acknowledge to others you have sinned against when possible and appropriate the words and deeds committed against them in regard to the matter and seek their forgiveness in these things. Number seven, remove yourself from people, places, products, and perspectives that lead you to engage in the lusts of your heart and set barriers that make it difficult to return to these things. If you're married to the person, you must respectfully decline any and all suggestions to live in a manner unworthy of the Lord while properly walking in the prospective role as a spouse with that person. Number eight, make no more provision 
for the lust of your heart and abstain from the lust of your heart. Set yourself against the lust by embracing the person, the power, the precepts, the pleasures, and promises of God. Number nine, bring yourself under the control of the Lord Christ, who is your master, by getting back to walking in the role and responsibilities God has called and empowered you to walk in with the purpose of pleasing him. Number 10, expect the presence of God in a real and personal way to be with you and Satan to flee from you in that particular temptation as you humble yourself and practice resisting temptation and pursuing our Lord Jesus Christ. And then number 11, expect the power to resist and obey. Peace of mind, productivity in your resistance and obedience perseverance in your resistance and obedience and pleasure in your resistance and obedience from God as you humble yourself and practice resisting your temptation and pursuing our Lord Christ. Now, it's a lot of detail. I want to make that even simpler. You say, man, that's a lot. Can you break it down some more? Okay, if you ask. Here's what we've just said to you in all of this detail. You say, make it plain, man. Make it plain. Step number one, detach. Turn away from, separate from, make no more provision for the flesh. You want to deal with your sin, you got to learn to just walk away, and you can do it. Now, the second step is harder than the first one, detox. You know what that means to detox? Anyone ever fast? for more than a day or two. Anybody ever do that? When you're fasting, your body starts to scream really loud. Anybody ever experienced that? And it's like, I'm hungry! Feed me now! Over and over and over, and around the second or third day, the noise starts to just get quieter. And those hunger pains start to go away. But the pain of resistance is difficult. But the more you resist, the noise gets smaller. That's what happens when you detox of sin. Your flesh screams very loud for a little bit. But the more you resist, that voice gets smaller. But there's pain. There's always pain. Detach. Detox. Dedicate, make a mental resolve to give your life as a living sacrifice to God. Develop, cultivate patterns of obedience by literally thinking and doing what is right whether you feel like it or not. Depend, count on the power of God to enable you to think and do what is right as you are now yoked to him. Delight, learn to taste of the spiritual food in Christ allowed to satisfy your soul. I was an unbeliever in college and I was going to play a little bit of football. And when I was in school, first couple of years I was in a football dorm and they taught me how to drink beer. At first it was the nastiest thing in the world. But the more I kept taking those 40 ounces and you got these six, five guys around you going, chug, 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 chug. Before you know it, I was sipping it like water. It was one of those acquired things. And before you know it, I was always drinking until the Lord delivered me out of the penalty and the power of sin. But I had to learn to like it. Coming to Christ, I still had some of those old tastes of the world. And I had to learn to taste and see that God was good and the things of God were good. And the more I kept tasting the things of God, the less the things of the world had a flavor for me. It's the same for all of us. You've got to keep feeding on the things of God. And the more you feed on it because you've been recreated into the image of Christ, you're a new creature in Christ, you'll begin to taste and see that it's good. These are the things that we have to do. This isn't an event. This is a lifestyle. Let me close by reading this to you. I found this in the book called Sex and Money by Paul Tripp. Very good book to read, by the way. Listen to these words of Paul Tripp. He says, there are a few 
greater dangers in this fallen world than to listen to the myriad voices that tell us that somehow, some way, satisfaction of the heart can be found in the possession of or experience of something in creation. Things are not always what they seem. And in this world of deceit and danger, there is no more dangerous lie than the one that says that life can be found somewhere outside of the Creator. It is always the sin of thought and desire in your heart that hooks you to the evil in the world in which you live. If your principal motive is that God will be pleased, then you can liberally enjoy the, again, variety pleasures of the created world without rendering yourself fat, addicted, and in debt. It is only when you live for God that you have both grace-given desire and the power to say no to yourself, to exercise daily self-control, and to live as God has called you to live. You cannot live in the way you were created to live and have a lifestyle that chases personal desires. We all need to be rescued from ourselves by being spiritually awakened to something bigger than us. No life is more dangerous than the meward life that every sinner quests for. You simply cannot have yourself at the center and not end up with a life that is evil in the eyes of God. My brothers and sisters, I came all the way from the great nation of Texas <laughs> to encourage you in one simple reality. You have the power. Do you understand your passions? Are you willing to take ownership of your passions and stop blaming the people in your life? Stop blaming the past. Stop blaming your parents. Stop blaming the pressures. Stop blaming the problems or the pains to say that's why you do it. That's not why you do what you do. You do what you do because you want to do it. Are you willing to stop making excuses and make confessions and do the hard work by the power of God? And if you're willing, you will find that God will show up. And there'll be a difference. But you have to stop making excuses and start making confessions and start pursuing with all of your might the will and ways of God. And he promises he'll be there.